You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Rachel Ann McKinney. Rachel is a graduate student at the CUNY Graduate Center. Her research interest is in philosophy of language, epistemology, and feminist theory. Her dissertation looks at the work we do to understand and to be understood. Hello, Rachel, and welcome to the Omni um, Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Maisha. I'm so happy to be chatting with you. So, Rachel, how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, I think I was sort of always interested in philosophical questions, but I, I didn't know there was this thing called philosophy. Like, I was always really interested in, you know, things like related to evolution. I remember reading Neil deGrasse Tyson when I was little and just being like so enthusiastic about all this stuff having to do with science. But I didn't know that there you know, I was I was interested in free will and whether God existed, but I didn't like know that there was a part of the library that you could go to um, to read books by people who had been thinking really deeply about these questions. And so I sort of figured out that I was interested in philosophy my first couple years of college, that there was a name to this sort of mess of questions that I had been like curious about. So I, I think I've sort of always been interested in philosophy, but now I, I know that it is philosophy, you know? So what attracted you to philosophy of language? Um, I sort of fell into philosophy of language. So I started with the sort of practical interest in feminist philosophy and critical race theory. So sort of interest in power relations and how they get manifested in reality. So how they, how these questions about power relations constrain and enable what we know about the world, the way the world is. And I finally sort of landed in philosophy of language by way of those other questions. And that's sort of where I've been doing a lot of my work lately. So what does the phrase words have power mean to you, being that you work in philosophy of language? Yeah. So um, words allow us to do things in the world in this really sort of fundamental way. So it's, it's not like we just use language to express ourselves or to convey information or to like pool information with others but we also use them to get things done and <laughs> anyone who's ever had the experience of being unable to use their words to do something that they ought to be able to use them to do like to refuse or to um, contest or to ask or to disagree sort of I think knows the frustration of that kind of misfiring. So philosophers have sort of focused in particular on a, a few phenomena related to the fact that words have power. The phenomena of being silenced, for instance, which is sort of what I, I think I was just describing. But I think there are a lot of other interesting phenomena in the neighborhood. So I think the phenomena of being willfully misunderstood, especially willfully misunderstood by those in power, is a really important one. I think the phenomena of finding out that you don't have the words you need, right? Having your language sort of give out underneath your feet when you're trying to articulate something. 
I think that's another sort of important phenomena to figure out. So I think it's definitely the case that that words have power in, in a really sort of concrete material sense. They allow us to do things in the world and to get around and meet our needs. Now, I, I'm not going to act like I'm a philosopher of language, so I did get this phrase <laughs> from you called extracted speech. So please tell yeah. me, what is extracted speech and what are some examples of it that we use in our everyday lives? Great. So extracted speech is this category of speech that I'm trying to figure out. Um, it's speech that someone sort of makes you produce. Okay. Um, so uh, one way of thinking about it is in terms of speech that might be a response to practices of coercion or deception or manipulation or intimidation. But more generally, I think it's speech that one utters in response to having one's communicative agency undermined or bypassed in okay, some that's way. That's a big word. That's a big word. Communicative agency. What does yeah, that mean? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so, so we usually think that when we speak, what we mean is some sort of function of our intentions in speaking, what we sort of want our words to do, right? So um, when I ask you, have you gone to the store yet? Right. It's, I'm requesting, I intend to get some information from you. Right. So communicative agency is just a way of encapsulating this idea that we typically have some wiggle room and some choice in the words we use in what we want those words to do. And that speech is typically the result of a decision-making procedure. Um, so that's just what I mean by communicative agency, the, the choice and decision involved with the speech that we make. So examples of extracted speech. So I actually think that extracted speech is pretty ubiquitous. It's really easy to see it with cases where, you know, we haven't been coerced or manipulated or anything like that, but necessarily, but our decision making has been sort of bypassed in some way. So think about like terms of service agreements. So when you update iTunes, you get the little box that pops up with a lot of text that you don't read, but then you just click that you agree to the to the terms of service, right? Or think about other sorts of bureaucratic forms. So you are applying for a job and there's the form on the application that says something like, have you ever been convicted of a crime, right? And you have to fill out that space and you have to fill it out truthfully in order to, you know, hand in the form, blah, blah, blah. So I don't think these are cases necessarily of being coerced or manipulated, right? You can opt out. You don't have to update iTunes. You don't have to apply for that job. But you do have to do those things if there's some other end that you're trying to reach, right, that's meaningful to you. And even if there is a choice in the matter, maybe you don't experience it as a choice, right? Maybe it's really automatic or unwilled in a sense, for you to sort of check that mark or, you know, uh, uh, click the button. Do we also see this, and I know the states may be a little lower, but sometimes it's a little higher. Do we also see this in any form of, of, of media or social media? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think a lot of social media interaction is really this sort of automatic stimulus response type thing that we do. And I do it too, you know. <laughs> We click the like button when we, you know, somebody posts a joke that we like or, you know, our new favorite song or whatever. And we're not being coerced into doing it. We're not being deceived or intimidated. Nobody's like holding a gun to our heads. But it is this sort of automatic response that we have. 
and those are, you know, behaviors that are, that do get collected by, you know, the folks at Facebook to figure out what our preferences are, to figure out what strikes our attention and then to sort of sell us different types of things, you know? So it's not as though it's those choices, choices are inert, right? They have consequences for our future lives. Okay. Now, you know, I don't know a lot of uh, people who do philosophy of language and kind of merge that with social and political issues. And so I'm very interested in how did you get how did you get interested in police interactions and philosophy of language? So one thing that you see when you look at um, sort of contemporary philosophy of language is this focus on a particular kind of conversational context, a focus on a conversational context that is cooperative, where interlocutors share their goals and share their beliefs and their presuppositions. And you also get the focus on conversational contexts that are like abstracted from power, as though all speakers are able to do the same sorts of things in the conversation. And I was sort of particularly interested in conversational contexts where neither of those things is true, where speakers don't agree on the nature of the the language game, the nature of the interaction. They don't share presuppositions or beliefs. They don't share goals. And where the interaction is risky or difficult or dangerous for some of those interlocutors. So I started thinking about police interrogations and reading about them in the context of sociolinguistics and forensic linguistics. So there's some really great work that linguists have been doing on these sorts of contexts. And, you know, there were other contexts that I was interested in. I have, you know, a paper somewhere on like air traffic control (laughs) misunderstanding, right? But the, the police interaction stuff really grabbed me because it's such an important context to figure out, right? It's something that a lot of people deal with and, it ruins people's lives. Sometimes it ends people's lives. So it's, a, I think, a really pressing thing to figure out. And I think it's something that philosophers can maybe lend some resources to helping figure out. I've, I've seen lots of police interrogation. I mean, not because I've been at the police station, but t- through uh-huh. TV. But right. I think the right. most the most heartbreaking police interrogation I've ever seen was from the documentary Central Park Five. Mm-hmm. And seeing the police interrogate these teenage boys and mm-hmm. ultimately end up getting them to confess to a, a beating and a rape that they had no part in it whatsoever. Right. So so what are some of the, the speech strategies that police use? Uh, I'm glad that you brought up the Central Park Five case because I think this is a case that really brings to the foreground something that might at first glance seem really puzzling. So it might be really puzzling why somebody would confess to a crime that they didn't commit, right? Lots of times in these cases, people seem to make decisions against their best interests. They will, quote unquote, choose to, quote unquote, consent to search or confess to crimes or waive their right to an attorney or admit testimony. And it would be sort of irrational or imprudent or ill-advised for them to do any of these things. So why would anyone voluntarily expose themselves to criminal prosecution and punishment? So first of all, people don't do this because they're stupid, right? They don't do it because they're stupid. And it's it's not something that it, it only happens sometimes, right? It's These aren't isolated incidents. It's not like people only rarely make these mistakes. 
These things happen all the time. They happen systematically. We can make predictions about when and where people will make these sorts of mistakes. Um, and really smart people make these mistakes, right? So we need an explanation for why people seem to do things with their words that are completely against their own interests. So the Central Park Five case is one where I think it's really clear that part of what was going on was there were a lot of different factors. So one was that, you know, these were kids, these were teenagers between the ages of, I think, like 13 and 16, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they were, you know, being held in police detention for you know, up to 12 or 18 hours. A lot of times in some of the, in this case, there were instances where they were sort of straightforwardly lied to about the conditions under which they would be let go, right? So they were sort of straightforwardly deceived. Their parents were sort of straightforwardly deceived. So they were operating under conditions of low information, conditions of deception, and things that seem really clearly to, I think, um, amount to duress. Right. But there are less extreme cases as well um, where it's not, you know, it doesn't quite get to the level of duress, but I still think that something has gone wrong. So take an interaction like getting pulled over. Right. So when you get pulled over, there is some ambiguity in how to interpret what a cop says to you. So when they say something like, can I see your driver's license or can you get out of the car, please? They probably intend this as command or an order, right? You're being detained. Um, he's telling you to give him your license. He's telling you to get out of the car, right? You have to do it. But the way it's phrased is really ambiguous. So it's phrased like a question that you might use as an indirect request. Um, mm. It's phrased like saying something like, can you pass the salt at the dinner table, right? So somebody who asks you, can you pass the salt isn't literally asking if you're able to and they're not commanding you to yeah. right but the can i see your driver's license it's different because the cop has the authority to order you to show it to him it's not like the can you pass the salt case closer to something like a sergeant saying to a, a soldier you know don't you think it would be a good idea to shine those shoes private Right. It's a it's a command that's phrased as an indirect request. Right. So it's this cop, you know, you take it to be a command. So you get out of the car, you show him your, your uh, license. But then he says something else. He produces another utterance that's phrased really similarly. He says something like, can you open the trunk or can I look in the trunk or do you mind if I search the car? Right. So this is, again, an utterance that could be interpreted as either a command or a request. But Given the nature of the interaction, it's only natural for the driver to assume that they're being ordered to open the trunk, that the cop is telling them that they're going to search, right? So now the thing is, police don't usually have the authority to search your car without your consent, right? Okay. Um, but in these interactions, they sort of leverage you into providing quote unquote consent because you don't think you have a choice in the matter, Right. So the question, can I look in the trunk, is a request. It is the sort of thing you can refuse. Right. But because the police officer has already sort of exercised his authority in stopping the car, ordering you to get out of the car, ordering you to hand over your license, you interpret, can I look in the trunk as an order or a command? So you say yes. And then that yes in, the, in that context is taken to be an act of consent to the search, right? Even though it's not genuine consent. So I don't think if you take a cop to be ordering you to let him search your car, I don't think that counts as genuine consent because to genuinely consent to an action, you have to be able 
to not consent, right? And you have to know that you're able to not consent. You could not consent as well, right? But in this case, you don't know that you have that option, right? So I think that these are cases of extracted speech. So you sort of, you have an, an active, quote unquote, consenting extracted from you. And given the conversational context, given the relations of authority, and given the fact that you are in detention, right, you're in police detention, I don't think it's surprising at all that people would make would do things with their speech that are against their interests. I don't think that's surprising at all. And I don't think it's something that people do because they don't know any better. Right. It's because they have had their decision making sort of undermined or bypassed or overridden and they're not able to make decisions or deliberate in ways that they otherwise would. Okay. So philosophically speaking, I don't want you to give any law yeah. advice. <laughs> philosophically speaking, if I am a young black male living in Bedstad, Brooklyn, and I have a police encounter. What are some tools, some strategies, some advice that you would give me that philosophy of language can help mm -hmm. me in this case? So I'm glad that you said not law advice because I am not a lawyer, <laughs> not an attorney. <laughs> um, one thing I will say is that there are regular know your rights trainings that are put on by people like the National Lawyers Guild that, you know, I've gone to that I think are really valuable. I think this is one of those cases where the recommendations for what is prudential to do, what is sort of like safe to do might trump what is, you know, so I think it's totally legitimate to ask whether an utterance was a request or an order. But I think prudentially, it's important to say it like as sweetly as possible. Um, and police really like compliance. They don't like even the suggestion that you don't take them seriously. You know, I've I've had interactions with police that have turned really ugly and I, you know, I'm very white, very middle class. But as far as I know, it's within your rights to ask whether an utterance was a request or an order. And that will give you a little bit more information about what you can do at that point. Another thing that I would um, maybe say is uh, don't talk to police unless you have to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, to, to ask whether you're being detained, then, you know, if you then know that you are being detained, you know, don't just don't don't speak. I think the I think the edict, you know, don't talk to the police is actually, again, just speaking in terms of what is in your best interest. I think that's a that's a pretty good suggestion. I mean, I think this is the sort of thing that can turn really quickly into a know your rights thing. But you also don't want to get into an argument with the cop about what your rights are, because he's going to arrest you anyway. And then, you know, if it turns out later that the case goes to trial, then you can have maybe a conversation with your lawyer and with the judge about whether criminal proper criminal procedure was followed. But it's not going to matter for the 12 hours that you're in central booking. It's like police routinely, routinely violate people's rights in this regard. And you can't, and they hate it when you suggest that you know, know the law better than they do, even if you, even if you maybe do. So um, I guess my, my recommendations are pretty prudential, more so than, than philosophical. You are our third guest and our first woman philosopher guest. 
And so we're going to do a little advertisement here, right? There is probably a high school young lady or a college young lady that's just trying to figure out what they want to do. They may have a, may consider themselves a thinker or there's other subjects that they're, they're, they're attracted to. What would you say to them to not necessarily encourage, but to entice them to pursue a philosophical life? So I think it's worth saying, first of all, that pursuing a philosophical life doesn't have to happen within the discipline of philosophy, you know? So there are lots of ways to be reflective and critical and conscientious and ethical. Um, And you don't have to be an academic philosopher to do that. I do think that philosophy needs women for philosophy's own sake. I think the work that we do is is better with women. I think the work that we do is better with people of color, with LGBT folks, with people with disabilities. So as far as what we what we know, the theories that we're able to develop, it's epistemically advantageous for philosophy to encourage people to come into the field. Advice so when I was in high school, I would have loved to hear that there was a part of the library that I could go to <laughs> and read these books, you know, Simone de Beauvoir in, in retrospect, if I had been reading Simone de Beauvoir in 11, 10th, 11th grade, that would have been incredible. That would have been so eye-opening for me. Or um, Adorno and Horkheimer, that would have been really eye-opening for me. So just to, to know that there is a conversation that's been going on for, you know, thousands of years. These are legitimate questions. Does God exist? Do we have free will? Should I trust what I hear on the news? Right? These are legitimate questions. And there is a space for asking them. You know, these are conversations that have been going on for a long time. Yeah, one of the things I was, you know, kind of thinking about is, I I don't even know, I I never had a, a woman philosopher as a role model. I never knew of any woman philosophers when I was in an undergrad, but I always, you know, I play sports all of my life. So I never thought that one thing was for yeah, guys, yeah, yeah. right? That, that never deterred yeah. me. Um, but I, I wonder for, for young women who consider themselves thinkers, for mm-hmm. example, but when they go to their philosophy classes, mostly the men are mm-hmm. talking and, you know, it seems like a club and it seems like the teacher calls the guys. And so a, a woman feeling left out of this thinking space and not really feeling like philosophy is, is for her, whether she reads it or whether she pursues it as, as a profession, just feeling excluded from, from high kind of thinking kind of disciplines. So um, philosophy spaces can sometimes be really obnoxious spaces. I think it's important to not let the obnoxiousness turn you off, to not let the ego, other people's ego or, you know, not let other people's sort of conversational behavior um, turn you off. It's really easy when you are first encountering this stuff in the context of an environment that's really alienating to just sort of shut down and move on to something else. But I think there's something to be said with sticking sticking with it and acquiring the um, intellectual tools to sort of meet the obnoxiousness, not with more obnoxiousness, but with um, reason yeah. and articul- articulateness, articulation. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, but and to be able to do some clarificatory work, some productive work, and some, you know, ground, ground clearing, bridge building work. So don't, don't let the obnoxiousness turn you off, I think is one thing I might say. If you only have the ability to write, 
talk, sign, or sing words, what would you choose and why? Um, I'm a talker. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm much more of a talker than I am a writer. And in academia, that's kind of a problem. People, <laughs> people want you to put it down on paper and they want you to revise it and to make it perfect. And that's, that's not how I learn. That's not how I do philosophy. So I'm a big talker. I am really into learning through conversation. And uh, so I would, I would probably say talk. What is the most powerful words from a rap song you've ever heard? So I really like this song by Dead Prez, Radio Freak, which is like kind of so. OK, so I really like like pop hip hop. Like I, I love Nicki Minaj. I love Drake. And but in this song, they're sort of like it's sort of a critique of pop music, the sort of stuff that you um, hear on the radio and the fact that it's only, you know, it doesn't reflect what is the best out there it doesn't reflect what is the most artistic out there and there's this line that it's like i don't gotta like it even if they play it a lot and that's sort of how i feel sometimes about philosophy okay like this um these topics that are like so popular and so important and there have been thousands and thousands of pages written about them. I know that's a big deal, but that doesn't mean I have to care about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's sort of my, my reaction to, you know, I mean, maybe that's sort of um, unfair to, you know, some of these big topics, big topics that are actually really esoteric. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I will look through these, like, you know, fancy pants journals, and I'm just like, well, I don't like any of this, but, you know, it's okay to not <laughs> like any of this. I don't have to. In the same way that just because they play a song on the radio all the time doesn't mean that you have to actually like it. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed oh, our hey, time thank together. Thank you so much. This was great. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.